Welcome back to the Evan Space Dermatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 105, Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Connective Tissue Disorders Following COVID-19. Alrighty, I am regretfully returning to talk about COVID-19, but this is such a relevant question for my patients and such a relevant question for rheumatologists that I, I've been meaning to talk about one of these papers. And this one gave a really nice opportunity to also talk about some observational methodolo- methodology issues that, that kind of arose here. So the question here is obvious. When you get COVID-19, are you more likely to get an autoimmune disease afterwards? I can tell you that patients who go to my clinic very, very frequently have been saying, you know, I I got rheumatoid arthritis after I had COVID-19 or, you know, I felt great, then I got COVID-19 and now I have ankyovasculitis. It really does seem like there's been people who get COVID-19 and then subsequently develop an autoimmune disease. Now, it's so often that I would expect this to start to show up in data sets. And that's what this paper here is all about. Looking at a big national database to say, does COVID-19 occur more frequently after COVID-19, or sorry, does autoimmunity occur more frequently after COVID-19? Now, this thing was based on a nationwide population-based data set from the Korean Disease Control and Prevention Agency. Pretty cool. It's a single healthcare insurance system, so they have the, you know almost 99% of the Korean population, so very broadly applicable, generalizable. There weren't that many people who got COVID cases before October of 2020 because COVID came late to Korea. And so they went by actually excluding those people and focusing on afterwards. So the, the evaluation period here was essentially once COVID hit Korea until, you know, the last day to follow up. They wound up having almost half a million people who had COVID in that time period, though. So it was, it was pretty big, pretty big study. Now, my, my complaint with a lot of COVID research, and I'm so sick of it, I'm not reading any more of it, is that people will say like, hey, look, I saw 104 cases of eGPA after COVID-19 or something like that. But that's worthless. I need a comparator and a denominator. And this, this study gives us both. Their comparator was um, individuals who were stratified by birth year and and sex and had no um, prior uh, evidence of COVID-19 infection. So essentially people who never were registered in their COVID registry. So this wound up constituting about approximately 20% of the total Korean population because obviously some people didn't go to get uh, uh, doctor's visits every year, right? So they extracted data from only those people who had a general health examination and they randomly assigned a study index date to the control participants according to the distribution in the COVID-19 group. So when you're doing observational research, you should ask a couple problems. Number one, multiplicity. Has this been done many times using the same data set? Number two, um, confounding, which we'll talk about in a minute. Number three, time-related biases. So there's a big time-related biases here, which is that if you got COVID-19, that is your index date, right? We're measuring how much autoimmunity you got after that date because we have that date. Now, for someone who didn't get COVID-19, what is their index date? It's really hard to define, right? Because you could just pick some random day, but a random day isn't quite the same as a day where you went to the hospital. And the things that happen after a random day aren't quite the same as the things that happen after you go see your primary care doctor because you think you might have COVID. So say you go in, you get diagnosed with COVID, and your primary care doctor says, well, hey, you also have high blood pressure. Why don't you come back and see me in six weeks? Well, all of a sudden, that supposedly, you know, that, that, that day of getting COVID-19 is not only the day you got COVID-19, it's also the day where you became reinvested in your healthcare and things like that, you know? So that it's important to find a time zero or an index date that makes sense. In this case, they sort of use the distribution of dates from the COVID group, then they match that in their comparator group. Ah. I mean, it's good. I think it's the best they could have done, but it's really hard to know when the day of not getting COVID should be for someone who didn't get COVID, right? It's like a, it's like proving a negative. 
Now, the outcome here was the incidence of various autoimmune, autoinflammatory connective tissue disorders. I'll talk about all those in a second. And these were defined by three visits with an ICD-10 diagnostic code, which is pretty good. I mean, most people would use one or two codes. So I actually thought that was pretty rigorous. And, you know, I mean, if you if you have three visits with a code for an autoimmune disease, you you probably have that autoimmune disease. And then that brings us to how they dealt with confounding. You know, I said confounding is an issue, and confounding is, you know, so maybe people who got COVID were also more likely to be, um, let's say, older or more likely to have some other um, comorbidity. And then, therefore, they're more likely to develop giant arteritis, right? That's, that's, so age in that case is a confounder because it's associated with getting COVID and coming to the doctor, and it's also associated with getting an autoimmune disease. But that doesn't necessarily mean that autoimmune disease caused giant cell arteritis. So that's a confounder, and you need to deal with that. So to deal with that, these investigators did the good thing that everyone's doing these days, which is they calculated propensity scores. They essentially said, how likely is it that you would have gotten COVID based on your characteristics? And then they used inverse probability weights. So patients who were way more likely or way less likely would be more or less weighted. And so the, the idea there is that we wind up adjusting for all of the potential confounders. It's a really, it's a really nice methodologic approach. Maybe not perfect, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, it's, it's the, it's the modern statistical epidemiology thing that we do. So then they said, all right, we have these weights. How do we incorporate those into our analysis plan? Well, we're new multivariable Cox proportional hazard analysis, which is essentially saying, I want to calculate, um, over time, how likely it is for some badness to happen, your risk of this thing happening. And I'm going to adjust for variables and for the weights that we calculated for how likely you are to have gotten this thing. <laughs> it's really complicated when you try and say it out loud. But essentially, they did all the good modern stats to deal with potential confounders. All right. Now, if you had already had a disease, so say you had vasculitis before you entered the study, you were excluded. So this is prevalent cases, what we would call this. They excluded prevalent cases. All right. With this background, they did all the fancy stats. They have a nice, big, nationally representative database. What did they find? Well, they got 350,000 patients who had COVID-19, and they, they um, compared those to 6.1 million who did not. Covariates were well-balanced. They used these things called standardized mean differences, which is a way to assess whether or not your fancy stats worked, and it sounds like they worked. And so from that, they could calculate the risk of COVID um, after developing, or sorry, the risk of autoimmunity after getting COVID-19. Very cool. Now, if you're reading with me on the paper, take a look at figure two. So figure two gives the risks of incident autoimmune autoinflammatory disease outcomes in the COVID-19 cohort compared with the control cohort. This is what we want to know, right? And what you see here is a lot of little air bars, little forest plots. And these forest plots are showing that there's some elevated autoimmunity. So the first thing is alopecia areata, patients who get alopecia. It looks like there's a 12% higher um, adjusted hazard of getting of getting that after COVID-19 as compared to not having COVID-19. Alopecia totalis, 74% increased risk. Inc-associated vasculitis, the adjusted hazard ratio is 2.76 post-COVID-19. So that looks Looks pretty bad, and all these are significantly different. And then Crohn's disease, you know, 1.68 hazard ratio, so 68% increased hazard or risk of getting Crohn's after autoimmunity. Sarcoid kind of on the border there, not that many cases, but yeah, looks like it. So, you know, that 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 kind of tells a story that maybe this really is a thing that post-COVID-19 patients are developing autoimmunity. But here's the problem. Now, they, they, they discuss this at length in their paper, but they kind of quietly decide not to discuss in any depth 
the things that were associated with being protected from getting COVID-19. So if you got COVID-19, the chances you got lupus afterwards, it actually reduced your risk by half, which seems wildly implausible. Same with polymyositis, not significantly different, but certainly different. Bichette's disease. Apparently, if you get COVID, you're you're suddenly protected from Bichette's syndrome. Sjogren's syndrome. If you get COVID-19, you're le- less likely to get Sjogren's syndrome. I mean, come on. We all know that this is pretty implausible. And so this is the first problem with this study, which I'm going to call multiple hypothesis testing or, you know, testing a lot of different questions all at once. You know, they didn't just do a big grab bag of all autoimmunity. They, they asked about specific diseases, which I think is good. And some of those diseases fell on the higher risk post-COVID-19, but some of them looked like lower risk post-COVID-19. And you're going to have a hard time convincing me that getting COVID-19 is protective against lupus. That flies in the face of pretty much everything that I understand and think about lupus. So that, that seems pretty implausible to me. Now, the second problem is like most of this risk in aggregate was driven by alopecia areata. That was by far the most common condition. And boy, post-COVID-19, you know what happens? People often lose a lot of hair. Now, alopecia areata and alopecia totalis are certainly different than the telogen effluvium that you see post-COVID-19. But I mean, I'm pretty lazy with my coding. I don't know how great the folks in Korea were coding. I'm probably better than me, but certainly... um. Certainly not perfectly. And I could imagine people post-COVID-19 losing hair and then some doctor in some clinic somewhere clicking the alopecia button that came up, not really giving a whole lot of thought to subsequent investigators who are going to be using this to do real science and thereby sort of saying, hey, this is what we call misclassification bias, right? Post-COVID-19, people develop alopecia, not alopecia areata, but maybe telogen effluvium. And so then they wind up getting categorized, but this is a misclassification. So I, ugh, a lot of this risk is being driven by things that I could very easily see being misconstrued or misdiagnosed. So that, that's two problems. First, you know, the, the effects actually go both directions in the study. The second, you know, in aggregate, the most common effect was actually for a disease that I'm not really sure I would call an autoimmune disease. It's really not in the sense of one that I treat. And the third is that a lot of autoimmune diseases had no, in, no, uh, no impact whatsoever. So psoriasis, there's no no adjusted there's no increase in risk vitiligo no increase in risk ulcerative colitis nothing rheumatoid arthritis nothing um ankylosis botulitis nothing like for a lot of these diseases it looks like there's just no association whatsoever between developing covid-19 and then subsequently getting autoimmunity so you can't really have your cake and eat it too. I mean, the authors here, their their conclusion was pretty aggressive. They said COVID-19 was associated with a substantial risk for autoimmune and autoinflammatory connective tissue disorders, indicating that long-term management plan of patients with COVID-19 should include evaluation for such disorders. I mean, that's madness. That is a totally unsupported conclusion based on these results. I mean, what about all these patients with RA who this study seems to very strongly suggest is not associated with COVID-19 at all? RA being psoriasis being far more common. Now, I mean, Inca associated vasculitis, that was the one that I read earlier that had a pretty strong association with COVID-19. I mean, they had three cases of vasculitis in the COVID-19 group and 21 cases in the control group. So this is a very uncommon thing to happen, period. I mean, if we'd had one case instead of three cases, that would have totally shifted the direction of that effect. I mean, the study was just kind of underpowered to assess vasculitis, even though it was quite large. So there's a lot here that's quite questionable. And then, and then finally, and this is a really interesting methodologic point. So they did this thing called positive control outcomes and negative control outcomes. And 
These are some that I'm really interested in right now. Writing some writing some editorials about that. So, but so, but let me just tell you, introduce what these are. So, the positive control outcomes. The idea is that post COVID, we think that some things happen. You know, there there are certainly literature showing that people have more myocardial infarctions, more CHF, and more stroke. And so, they included those and said, how often does this happen? Lo and behold, there's an increased risk of all those things post COVID nineteen. So. I, I I think that the risks that they saw were probably higher than reality. This showed a 60% increase in CHF post COVID-19. That sounds implausible to me, but okay, fine. I'll buy that, that, you know, they expected to see these things. They did see them a priori. This is what they chose. And, you know, you got to give them kudos for, for, for trying it. But what about negative control outcomes? So negative control outcomes are outcomes that shouldn't plausibly be associated with um, your exposure. So in this case, getting COVID-19 shouldn't cause you to have an epidermal cyst, right? No one can no one can imagine why you'd get an epidermal cyst after COVID-19. Or what about trauma? Do you think that you get, you know, post-COVID-19, you're more likely to be in a car accident? I mean, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And so a negative control outcome is something that should not be associated with um, the exposure of interest, which in this case was COVID-19. So what did they see? Well, <laughs> didn't work. The epidermal cysts were less likely among people who got COVID-19. So again, do I really think COVID-19 is protective against epidermal cysts? Like not really. Um, trauma of multiple sites. People who got COVID-19 were less likely to go undergo trauma. Um, you know, I mean, it was 11% less likely. I mean, if I knew that I was going to be 11% less likely to have a trauma of multiple sites. I mean, does that mean I want to get COVID to avoid trauma of multiple sites? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And this is where I get really frustrated with this paper, because in addition to kind of ignoring the fact that a lot of these diseases seem to have no association whatsoever, or no increased risk whatsoever after COVID-19, and then completely ignoring the fact that it seemed like COVID-19 was supposedly protective against some of these diseases, which is also implausible, they did this cool thing where they included these negative control outcomes and then they just kind of ignored it. I mean, they didn't really discuss this at all in their discussion. They didn't talk about it as an important limitation of the paper. Instead, they just kind of blithely concluded that, you know, they, they, they let me just read their conclusions. Our study comprehensively investigated the risks of autoimmune and autoinflammatory connective tissue disorders in patients with COVID-19 compared with controls, highlighting these disorders as, as potential post-COVID-19 sequelae. Long-term management of patients with COVID-19 should, should include evaluation of subsequent development of autoimmune and autoinflammatory connective tissue disorders. I mean, that is, that is a very strong, strong, strong conclusion based on data that like really doesn't support that. I mean, someone with a different bias could have written, um, you know, this data suggests that COVID-19 has no association with the development of ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, ankylosing spondylitis, or systemic sclerosis, and appears to be protective against developing lupus, bichettes, and um, epidermal cysts and trauma. I mean, I did, that, that just that's obviously not true. Much more likely, there's just some bias because this is a very complicated study, and observational data is fraught with bias. And 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 more likely to me, there's just there's, this is being driven by some bias and probably the fact that there were very few events for some of these um, potential autoimmune diseases. So. Yeah, this to, to bring it all home. I mean, I I like this study because this is a very important question. 
Um, this is a good database. I mean, the, the observational data they had seems to be comprehensive, is large. Um, they had data on a bunch of important conditions. The ones they included were reasonable, I thought, with the exception of some of the hair loss ones. Um, so there's a lot of good things that they did here that I actually thought were uh, quite reasonable. They did all the modern stats, the propensity matching. You know, they they tried to control for time zero problems as best as I think they reasonably could have. So a lot of reasons to give a tip of the hat to the investigators. But I I think that a lot of time people come into a question with an a priori belief, and in this case it seems quite clear that the patient that the investigators believed that COVID nineteen caused autoimmunity. And once they believed that, they just kind of ignored the fact that apparently it was completely not associated or, I mean, I don't think it's at all protective, but potentially protective based on their data. So I, I just think that they wound up seeing in their data the story they wanted to tell when it's actually quite a bit more complicated. What do I think? I don't know. I have had so many patients relay this to me, and I have long believed that autoimmunity arises after with, you know, maybe a, a substrate um, and then some antigenic trigger. COVID-19 is one heck of an antigenic shiver, trigger. And it seems entirely plausible to me that post-COVID-19 people develop autoimmunity. Based on this study and the other data that I've seen, I don't think there's a very big signal there. I think that probably the vast majority of people who develop autoimmunity um, post-COVID-19 were incidental. But I mean, in my heart of hearts, I do think that this is real, but I don't think this paper proves it. As much as I believed the story the authors probably believed going into this, I, I don't think their data supports it. So hope that was interesting. Kind of a cool paper. Um, I think a very important question and overall a good attempt to answer it. But at the end of the day, I really think that the conclusions for this paper were almost written before the data became apparent. And I don't think the conclusions are at all supported by the data, which is just kind of frustrating. So that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.